0: Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com.
1: Things are changing, but maybe I'm a little impatient, but not quite at the pace that I expect. So recently we saw the... um, A report launched by Kate Jenkins after her inquiry into federal parliament with some pretty damning statistics about least sexual harassment in that institution and the lack of safeguards to protect that, which, I mean, it's just starting from there, that's something that they should be leading on, not trailing behind by decades. I think that's really concerning. But I also think last year with March for Justice was a very crucial time to really shine a spotlight on just how big that problem is.
0: Welcome back to episode 4 of our new season of Humans of Purpose. We are proudly sponsored by Neon Treehouse, the best digital agency on the planet Earth. To learn more, just head to neontreehouse.com or hit the link in our show notes. We are also sponsored by Creole, who are now the official drink of Humans of Purpose. As loyal Humans of Purpose listeners, you can enjoy a 15% discount on their tasty range of healthy sodas. Just hit the link in our show notes or head to creole.com.au, click shop and enter discount code humans of purpose as one word on checkout. A guest on the pod this week is Yasmin Poole. Yasmin is a youth advocate and board director. She has a glittering CV that I encourage you to check out via her LinkedIn profile and her website, which is linked in our show notes. I won't mention everything, but I will say that Yasmin has achieved more at the age of 22 than many of us will achieve in our lifetimes. Yasmin is a Rhodes Scholar and also the Martin Luther King Jr. Center's 2021 Youth Influencer of the Year. People like Yasmin remind you that you are no longer classified as young and and at age 37, gee, where is the time gone and what was I doing when I was 22? I reached out to Yasmin as I wanted to get a better understanding of what the youth of today are thinking about a range of topics, how the youth voice can influence better social and societal outcomes, and how to best mobilize the youth voice for social impact. I was also keen to get a sense of what advocacy means from her perspective as a young Asian Australian woman. Yasmin has great wisdom and has given me much to think about as a result of this conversation. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Yasmin as much as I did. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by Yasmin. Welcome to the podcast, Yasmin.
1: Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here.
0: After a couple of uh, failed uh, attempts at making this happen, we've made it work.
1: Yes, a long, a, a, one phone later, a long story, <laughs> but I'm finally here. Uh,
0: phones, infectious diseases, but you're well now. That's and right. uh, You look healthy and uh, happy, and I'm so pleased you could join me. Okay. Look, there's no better way to start a Humans of Purpose episode than to learn a little bit about your background. Um, We will get to your busking as a youth, and I want to know what you learned about the human condition from that enriching experience. But talk to me about your education so far and career journey so far, because for a young person, um, 22 years old, you've done a shitload.
1: Yeah. Well, I actually, just turned twenty three, so maybe that I don't know that justifies the work so far. But no, <laughs> um, look, it's been a crazy, crazy journey. But to summarise what I do, it's youth uh, being a youth advocate. Um, to put it to put it shortly, but I guess unpacking all of that, it's um, being on boards and doing advocacy as a commentator in the media, public speaking as well. In terms of my education, so I'm just finishing up a Bachelor of Law, International Relations, up at ANU. And it's, um, yeah, kind of led me to this crazy path, which I'm sure we'll unpack, but um, just entering into the new stage of um, a gap year for this year and then um, postgrad at Oxford at the end of this year as well.
0: It's a hell of a lot to pack into a couple of years, um, sort of after that 18th birthday mark. Um, I want to get into all of it, and the Oxford part sounds amazing, um, but tell me about busking. What led to that? What did you learn? How was it? And are there insights that you took away from that that you hold dear to today?
1: Well, I can see you've done your research. In terms of busking, it's a funny story. It started when I was eight years old, and I wanted to learn how to play guitar, and that same year, actually, the bushfires, there was a really bad bushfires that happened um, around where I lived in Bendigo, Victoria. And there was just this crazy idea that why don't I just start busking and start raising money and see what happens. So I stood outside my local IGA and, again, eight years old, so like I've got a guitar that's probably as big as me. <laughs> And just go up there, put my guitar case out to get donations and just start singing like the Beatles, ABBA, all the kind of classics. And in the beginning, like it was like, you know, just kind of me and no no one was really, you know, dropping any coins and it was all a bit sad. And then I remember like – Went up again twenty minutes later, and it got a great reception. And I think everybody was just like, "What is this little little pint-sized kid doing? Like singing the Beatles?" But
0: but you could that's sing already, yeah. They actually had singing skills.
1: I had singing skills. I don't know, like you, shower singing. Or yeah, shower beyond. singing. If you're sympathetic to a kid, let's just say, like, it wasn't like X Factor material. Yeah. You're not going to
0: rip on an eight year old for their singing quality. Yeah, it seems unreasonable.
1: Like, raising money for bushfires. I don't yeah. know. So I think yeah. people were just like really kind, and um, I think they just were happy to kind of yeah watch me perform and I think for me it was something that really kind of actually grounded my work now which sounds really strange but a lot of what I do is public speaking and it is communicating and you need a level of fearlessness to do that and to really back yourself and put yourself out there and it kind of started with busking, funnily enough. Like I remember even, um, you know, having to sing like at a cafe and like going up to someone's table and like performing. And um, yeah, I just kind of like immediately got rid of that fear that I might have had without that.
0: You really banished those demons very early at eight years old. I know a lot of people would rather be tortured than do public speaking.
1: I will say, though, if you show me a video of me singing, I will be supremely embarrassed. So <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it's, it was a good time. But uh,
0: So do you, I mean, if it was me, that would be my spirit animal. I would think of myself as like eight-year-old Mike or eight-year-old Yasmin doing that, and then that could take me anywhere.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I I think I had no idea where I wanted to go back then, but I just knew that – I mean, back then performing was fun and interesting, and eventually when I became a teen, I thought, eh, like it's fun, but let's maybe not do that anymore. I just want to kind of focus on being a teenager. And since then I've kind of gone on to this interesting work of advocacy, which I never could have expected.
0: Yeah, let's dip into that. So first of all, what does it mean to you to be an advocate and a youth advocate? And then maybe also let's discuss why you decided that's something that you were passionate about.
1: Mm. So I guess like where it started, it was, I mean, I often take it back to this moment of being in year 11 and doing a public speaking speech of all things. And um, right before I decided to, you know, I was trying to think about well, what do I want to speak about. But actually that year was the year that ISIS was really kind of dominating headlines and um you know Islamophobia was very real and went, you know, kind of pierced even throughout my school. And with my mom being Muslim, that was something that really hit close to home. Mm. So I decided to write a speech just saying this is what I've experienced growing up and seeing racism and seeing discrimination. And got up there and just said something and it wasn't the most flawless speech I've ever delivered but it came from the heart and feeling like hey I've just taken that moment to just do something and to say something when I could have said nothing it really stuck with me and since then I've kind of that's led me down to where I am so I guess in terms of how I view advocacy now it's it's ultimately a sense of responsibility because it's saying that my experiences, as for me, a young Asian Australian woman, are important and have a space in the public debate. But not just me, all the communities that that represents who aren't traditionally represented. So, if I can use, you know, whatever I can do to help create that platform, that feels good and that's important. So, I think that responsibility really grounds what I do.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And, and so, when you were embarking on that journey of discovery around advocacy. Um, do you connect with the other advocacy organizations or how do you kind of find your way into that community?
1: Yeah, it was like such an interesting road in. I think everybody has a different story, but for me, I just finished high school and I was trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do in this like crazy life that I'm going to have? And um, it started by, I was working in retail and I just thought, I'm not feeling very fulfilled. What can I do outside of work? So after a quick Googling, I found some youth-led organizations like Oak Tree, so they focus on addressing poverty, entirely run by young people. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, this is really interesting. I've never come across a CEO being like 25 before.
0: (laughs) Do you wear a suit? Does she wear a suit?
1: No, it's totally relaxed. (laughs) Like It's like in Richmond and everybody's super casual with their MacBooks. It's like a very like Gen Z feel. (laughs) And just being in that space and seeing young people all from all different backgrounds, just taking a few hours of their time to advocate and do stuff they're passionate about really stuck with me. So it was just that initial kind of just showing up after work and taking the time to learn that kind of opened those doors and led me down that path.
0: And was that sort of like a coming home moment for you when you found Oak Tree?
1: Yeah, I don't think so. I think it was me just trying to find my place. Yeah. It actually also came from wanting to even make friends because I'd just moved down to Melbourne. I didn't know anyone. So really it was just me saying, where is my place? And Mm. I'm just trying to find that. So, you know, I was also with the Australian Youth Climate Coalition Mm. and looking at climate justice. So it kind of gave me a sense of what's out there and the problems, though they may seem so big like climate change or poverty, there are little inroads and little wins that still count.
0: You've done a lot of work with very experienced boards and organisations, OzHarvest, Plan International Australia, um, YWCA. I wonder what it's like working with organisations where the boards and executive teams have much older people on them, um, people who might be predominantly Caucasian without without wanting to make too many assumptions, probably a lot of males. Um, What do you learn from sort of coming into these organisations with an entirely different identity?
1: I think the first part is feeling confident enough to be able to speak your mind, which is something that is intimidating as a young person, because of course, being on a board is strategic and you have to make really important decisions that affect people. So first of all, feeling comfortable enough to say, I feel like I can support and assist in this space. But in terms of my approach to being on boards, I mean, first of all, I think it's really a privilege to have that platform. So recognizing, I mean, that first of all, but also that it's important that we get youth perspectives in decision-making spaces. So, for example, with Oz Harvest, they do fantastic work with young people in high school to teach them about food waste. So that's something that I can support and say, how can we better engage with young people? Or with YWCA Australia, they support disadvantaged young women that need housing support. So how can we kind of support young women there? So I think there's that kind of aspect that I identify that i can bring and my experiences and my skills have a place so not trying to replace the role of someone who's been in business for you know four decades but (laughs) as a young person these experiences can support a more inclusive organization
0: yeah it's very interesting because it it sort of seems to me like probably what would have been there before you who who would have been the voice of these communities that needed help who, who were the youth Mm. And so the the role that you play is incredibly important because you're kind of advocating on the collective voice of those communities. And I guess in a way, really changing the game for these organizations, like they're opening their eyes up to worlds that they just weren't aware of before.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think YWCA Australia, for example, I mean, they're an outlier in the wider board community, but 55% are young women, which is pretty extraordinary. Mm. And I'd say a huge um, percentage of the board are women of color as well. So It's also going into those spaces where you can really see them walking the walk, Mm. even at the highest level. That's really, I think, how you can feel authenticity from organisations that are talking about equality, but also showing it on that level as well.
0: Yeah, so there's an interesting ethical question that comes up here. Um, Would you join a a corporate board or some sort of board that was like every single person? It's an eight-person board every single person is between 55 and 64 and is called John, Chris, Paul or or Bill. Like is it better to be the one person who can start the avalanche of change or do you stay away from that and try and be more effective in more friendly zones
1: maybe? Well, what's the statistic there's like more Andrews on boards than women or something like that? Yeah, Mm. yeah, yeah. There's Andrew as well. Mm. Um, No, I don't think I would necessarily turn it away because of that if the board is genuinely committed to changing because we all start somewhere and there are plenty of boards that look exactly how you describe but hey if there's the board that says you know what we need to do better and we need to get diverse voices would you like to you know have a seat at the table that's great Um, but I also think there are plenty of times where There is one person in the room who's diverse, who's expected to somehow represent all the diversity possibly ever. That's a lot of pressure, especially if you need to push and challenge. You might get some pushback from the board, so it it can needs to start somewhere, but it also needs um, more than just one person. It needs a critical mass, as they say, and also just a genuine open mindedness to change,
0: buy in, and also not symbolic, right? Yeah, important. So, what are the things that keep you up at night? What are you thinking about? What are the things that you want to advocate about or do advocate about that you kind of – the things that kind of fundamentally pain you about our world um, or things that you hope for that are unrealized dreams?
1: Interesting. I mean, to be honest, what's on my mind is like everyone COVID right now, Mm. but it's also thinking about – What are the communities that are going to be left behind because of this pandemic? So last year, I did a lot of work around how women in especially are being left behind. You know, they're on the front lines of care industries, but also expected often to take care of the kids. And we just weren't seeing that understanding in government responses. We're seeing a lot of young people that are working in retail and food and are those kind of, again, on the front lines and are expected to Work, even though um, there's a higher risk of infection so we're seeing a lot of communities here that could be held back if we don't see that support coming in and I think that's where we look at parliament and we often don't see that diversity that's why it's so critical to get those voices in the room because otherwise we're creating responses that might just miss out on really important voices
0: yeah and I think we just we just lack so many perspectives that really should be there. And I think about other countries, um, sometimes countries like New Zealand and even Israel, where there's sort of mandated certain amount of seats for certain types of rep- people, uh, ethnically, demographically, um, different language speakers, different um, different uh, racial groups. Uh, and it just sort of gives you a lot more wholeness of debate and conversation and representation. And I just wonder with, with our parliament, I mean, are things changing or are we kind of at this point of just stagnance with you know with with the lack of diversity that we're seeing?
1: Things are changing, but maybe I'm a little impatient, but not quite at the pace that I expect. So recently we saw the um a report launched by Kate Jenkins after her inquiry into federal parliament with some pretty damning statistics about least sexual harassment in that institution Mm. and the lack of safeguards to Mm. protect that, which, I mean, it's just starting from there. That's something that they should be leading on, not trailing behind by decades. Mm. I think that's really concerning. But I also think last year with March for Justice was a very crucial time to really shine a spotlight on just how big that problem is, which was good because I think it, really kind of I'm hoping it drives decision makers to do something differently even if the current government at least the opposition to put pressure on them oh yeah but at the same time we also see the fact that it is exposed will it turn away some fantastic women especially young women that want to get involved but are scared of their safety yep which is a really uh I think it's a pretty scary thing that in a democracy, a young woman's too scared to run because of her safety. Oh,
0: it's terrifying. I mean, um, even just asking you, would you feel at the moment like you'd want to be a ministerial staffer or advisor? Mm. Um, Would you feel safe?
1: I I mean, I've like considered politics and being in that space and I'm still open to it, but it is a – it's scary because you see I think how women especially in Parliament have to walk this tightrope and there's a smaller space for women making mistakes even um, or there's even like you know research that women need to walk this line of not being too masculine, but show, but appearing to be like showing some form of masculinity, yeah. but yeah. then not too feminine because then the scene is weak. So it's this kind of tightrope that I think is is concerning. So again, we need I think that it, we need to start with having that um, critical mass of that at least fifty percent women. Start from there, but also create more diversity through cultural representation, etc. I think that can at least help to bring down those walls and change the perception.
0: And it's interesting because in the business world we hear so much about how diversity leads to better profits and better outcomes and there's there's a strong monetary case, not just an equity case. And it, it sort of strikes me as a bit surprising that um, we, we know that um, you can make better decisions if you have better representation of, of a range of perspectives and, you know, backgrounds, differences, uh, gender, sexuality. So why is parliament – um, you know the most important institution in our land so slow to kind of come to this realization that maybe things could be better if we had the right mix of people in the room.
1: It comes down to one word, which is power, mm. in my opinion. So. It, like politics is a place that attracts power and unfortunately with the nature of our democratic system it, it it's almost game like winning votes um you know or getting the support of your party and that's I think something that can often attract the wrong kind of people um not to paint everybody though in politics with a broad brush, mm. but just something that, I've certainly noticed, and we, we saw with the treatment of Britney Higgins, um, unfortunately, politicians turning away when they needed to look and they needed to say something and they didn't. So I think it kind of comes down to that and we've got a lot of um, a culture of, I think, holding back to maintain that power over generations.
0: What can we be doing and what is being done to change things?
1: Inside Parliament?
0: Yeah, just to get the the gender diversity mix better in parliament, better representation for women.
1: Well, I think it depends on the party. So if we look at the current government, honestly, I don't think very much. But we have seen things like gender quotas, um, you know, for example, in the ALP on a federal level, and you can see that difference. I remember when I used to be in Canberra and I went to the House, I looked at the House of Reps and you kind of sit up there on the public seats and you look down and, yeah, you can definitely just see the difference looking at either side. So I think there's that. There's also some fantastic programs I've been involved with, like Plan International Australia, that are so that are very intentional about getting young women a platform and having a say. So, also starting from that level is just as crucially important. So I think we've got those kind of two forces. But I think the part that still needs work is the pre-selection process yeah. when we come, when it comes to you know who are we approaching. Why are we picking them? Um, And it should be more than just politics. It should also be what are their views, who are they representing and how can that add to our political voice?
0: Um, Let's talk a little bit about – Feminism and feminism being on the rise in Australia, more, more people are supporting feminism and especially men too. I just wonder what feminism means to you as a young person, as a 23-year-old Gen Zer. Is it different to other um, forms of feminism that might have been from previous generations? How do you kind of see yourself in that mix?
1: Mm. Oh, that's a very good question. I think what feminism means to me first and foremost is freedom means freedom for women free from societal harmful expectations, free from discrimination, free to pursue whatever we want to pursue. So I think it starts from there. I do think what makes my generation's feminism unique or emerging is that there's a big focus on intersectionality, which is to say women are, aren't all the same even though we are women there's also race and there's class and the sexuality and age and all of these other factors so when we push forward and when we demand for change let's not forget the type the diverse women that are often kept below let's put them at the front and let's think about how we can do that how we can address that as well so more of a kind of holistic interwoven um, type of feminism. So, I mean, for example, you know, you look at climate change and how that's affecting women in the Pacific who um, have the expectations to collect food or water but can't, um, or you look at the fact that uh, gender-based violence goes up after a natural disaster. Mm. So it's thinking about those kind of interwoven challenges that I think is the nature of feminism today.
0: Yeah, I think interwoven challenges is definitely going to be like a pull quote that I draw on this year. It's just everything sort of seems to be colliding at the same time and having um, a, a raft of multivariate consequences. Um, so, yeah, and, and just on diversity, I mean, you made a good point there and with intersectionality, from what I understand, it's about sort of layers of disadvantage or layers of um, power differential. So all different lenses even. So there's, you know, um, being a female, being an Asian Australian female, and then being a female from a lower socioeconomic background might be three layers of of, of disadvantage.
1: Yeah. I mean, essentially it's saying, you know, if I'm standing here right now, all of those different parts make up who I am. Mm. So to just pull out one, so for example, female, and say, this is your experience because of X, Y, Z. It misses all of these other things that make up who I am. And of course, it will never fully capture who somebody is, but it gives us a helpful guiding point, which I think just pulling one out doesn't. And we see this happen if you look at, you know, I I guess back in history, looking at women um, as one which is a starting point but doesn't quite nail down, again, things that we talked about such as race and class. So if you just think about you know, everybody, no matter whether you're a woman or a man or anybody, you stand at an intersection of who you are, all mm. these different parts about you, and recognizing that they're not separate but they they combine and they create a new experience. Mm. So I think what intersectionality is trying to show is – um. You can experience privilege in some areas, you know, if you're white, for example, but you can also experience disadvantage in other spaces. So that forms up somebody's experience. It doesn't have to be binary or linear or black or white.
0: Yeah. And it just sort of makes me think a little bit about not judging a book by its cover and understanding that whole person and the whole person's makeup and experience and, if you don't take the time to get to know people, it's very easy to jump to conclusions. You know, I, I used to get told a lot um, by, um, you know, um, particularly one group of a, a feminist organisation sort of said to me, "Look, you know, you're a, you're a um a middle an, an older white Australian. What do you know about female struggles?" And I sort of thought to myself, well, that's not accurate. First of all, I'm a Jewish youngish male uh, with North African ancestry and European ancestry, and I happen to be married to a strong independent woman. I'm the son of a strong woman who's the biggest role model of my life. And, you know, I I sort of wonder, you know, how much direct experience do you need to advocate and to represent and kind of, you know, deal in certain issues as well? Mm. Um, I think as men we have a really important role to play in sort of – not presuming to to know any more than anyone else, but we certainly can add how we perceive things and, you know, be careful not to judge others too much.
1: There is a role for everybody mm. in this, and I think it comes down to that. I think, of course, listening first and foremost is important, especially if it's the community that is affected. I mean, you know, you think about First Nations community, and I think it, it's so important that we can – actually listen and learn rather than speaking but at the same time you know we talk about feminism of course there is male perspectives there is also harmful social expectations on men that's just as damaging Mm. and that's the point of feminism it's not to say women um, are the best and we should only support them it's saying that these gendered expectations aren't good enough for all of us it it hurts all of us so I certainly think for men I mean we, we look at March for Justice I had a lot of men saying, well, what's my place in all of this? And there is so much men can do in even supporting and amplifying the cause or, you know, um, motivating women around them and, and and being there and supporting if if they're advocating and saying something. So um and you know, if there's a moment to speak up, to join them and to say something. So there's always that opportunity to to support and i should it certainly isn't something that is negative um but I, and i think that's important for for men to also realize that they have a space in this conversation mm. because men are also affected too
0: absolutely great points and i wonder When you're thinking about diversity, I mean, a lot of focus goes on gender diversity, but there's all different kinds of diversity. There's cognitive diversity, there's ethnic diversity, there's uh, people with disabilities, um, socioeconomic diversity, diversity of background and experience. So it's interesting to me that we're kind of, we're stuck on one type of diversity that we haven't got right yet, but we sort of don't bring into the rest of the conversation a whole range of these other diversities that would be really important to sort of include.
1: Yes. I mean, I think that's where intersectionality comes mm. in because it's saying, like, yeah, if we can talk about gender all we want, but there's so many other things to consider. And something that I've actually been reflecting on actually during uni is that class is the thing that's the most like, obvious when it comes to that level so yes there's of course gender diversity there's there's often more women in the in the class Um, there is a level of cultural diversity that could be improved but it's class where you really see that difference and you know i went to growing up from someone that somewhere that didn't have much money seeing the barriers to try to go to the uni that I wanted to go to, seeing how you needed like a a ton of experience, even in high school, which I never had the chance to do. That's the thing that is really concerning to me. So in terms of even my work going forward, I really want to kind of focus on the young people that come from underprivileged and poorer backgrounds because it's often those that because of all the barriers set up that it's hard to even see unless you face them head on they're still there and it, we really need to bring them down.
0: At this point in the podcast, I'm going to make you blush a little bit. We haven't gone through all the awards and accolades that you've won in your time, in your short time on the planet. We won't get into that now. I will include them in the podcast, uh, Notage, uh, as is good practice. But I wonder, you know, having achieved so much success at a young age, um, what do you? how is your life now? How do you think about all the years you've got ahead of you and and what are you doing at the moment?
1: I mean, I think in terms of um, everything that's happened, like I really didn't expect everything to happen in the way that it has, but it's so interesting how walking, you know, walking with purpose and intent and having your values clear and just having the confidence to say something, how that kind of opens up pathways that you didn't even realize there so like I said my journey started with feeling curious and you know actually pretty unsure about what I wanted to do but Mm. saying this is really interesting and I believe that young people should have a seat at the table which has happened to bring me here so I guess in terms of my future work um, I mentioned Oxford so I just talked about intersectionality what I really want to do is to even create a framework that decision makers can use when creating public policy. So let's say a COVID response, if they can think about those intersectional groups right at the start, I think we're going to create better results at the end because it means that those communities aren't being forgotten or they're not a footnote or something that we fix later. So
0: So properly uh, engaged and consulted and co-designed from the beginning.
1: Precisely, which is something that I've seen done well and done pretty poorly over different experiences. So I think I'd love to do that and then, of course, continue being a commentator and – adding my experience as a young woman and hopefully opening doors for other young women to be in those spaces that we often don't see ourselves.
0: So if we can draw back the curtain a little bit, um, when you sort of hit critical mass and you're in the media all the time, you're doing shows like The Project, um, you go to Canberra, you're winning awards, do you have a publicist or an agent?
1: I do have an agent, which has been really helpful because uh, studying full time and trying to answer emails is very tricky. So there's that, which has been really helpful.
0: And so, and you've got enough time and space now to really invest in the things that you care about and and do your writing, you were saying, as well, and more advocacy work?
1: I'd love to. I'd love to be more active in my contributions Mm. to the debate. Last year I was doing my um, thesis on an intersectional analysis of constitutional law, um, which is fantastic, but I said I'm not going to be taking on any work during this time because (laughs) I was in the library every night. Very late hours, um, not feeling particularly happy with all the, you know, all the work that I had to do. So finally, I get a bit of a breather to continue to do that. So I want to, you know, especially in light of the upcoming federal election, March for Justice is going to be right back on the agenda and I want to be working to make sure gender equality is front and central. So I'll definitely be um, working on supporting that.
0: And so when there's a campaign or a cause that you want to embark on advocating for or supporting... Do you talk to your agent and say these are the types of opportunities that I'm looking for in the upcoming months or are you quite strategic? Do you go out to certain agencies or outlets also?
1: I wish that I was actually like had it really organized, but honestly the way that it's unfolded is so natural. Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of my agent, it's usually just saying, hey, could you respond to this person? There isn't much kind of strategic um, navigation there. A lot of it is – you know, even on social media is actually probably the biggest one. So I was reflecting on how Twitter has been such a game changer for me. So I made that account my first week of university um, in 2017. And that has, it's a place where, you know, journalists are, where activists are, where all the debate is happening. So often it's kind of naturally evolving. I might contribute and then that might lead to media and it could lead to, you know, I'm working with a group of women that I've all met through Twitter that are like, fantastic people in gender equality. good
0: is meeting people through Twitter, by the way. Yeah. is the best?
1: It's pretty interesting. And you're like, <laughs> I've known you, but I don't know you the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. But being able to kind of join forces. So for me, it's all kind of happened really naturally. I think um, where it was more organized was right at the start when I hadn't done anything and I was actively looking for something to get involved with. But once you kind of get that ball rolling, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: And um, – you seem like a pretty full on person in terms of your work rate and everything you do. How do you unwind and sort of what do you like to do outside of your, um, your passions and workspace?
1: I mean, I'm not, I'm not actually that full on this, this year, which is fantastic. Mm. So, I mean, yesterday I was just watching The Matrix again, which is a fantastic series, so I've actually been having time to, to just chill. Including but,
0: the latest one or just the, the old ones? Not the
1: latest. I've been preparing. I'd actually never watched The Matrix growing up Whoa. because I was too scared. I remember when I was four and I was like, I'm so confused <laughs> and afraid, but I finally watched it and I loved it. So It's yeah. such a good movie. It's such a good one movie. One of the greats. It's one of the great it really like it. It just, stands a
0: test of time as well.
1: It does. The yeah. way that it feels so modern is just fantastic. I can't say I loved the uh, ones afterwards but the first one's fantastic
0: would you like to take the blue pill or the red pill and you
1: exactly not in the kind of like alt right way though
0: yeah not in the old right way <laughs> not it's been quite. do you notice <sighs> how many things have been like misappropriated from that movie
1: i know i know it's yeah. such it's but i was this is going on such a tangent yeah. but i was speaking to someone who said they didn't like the aesthetic of the movies and i was like What's wrong with you? It's like it's the, the best, best aesthetic, aesthetic ever. ever. <laughs>
0: it's like dark gothic. It's like Arkham <laughs> Asylum style. It's fit. Fa- yeah,
1: it's, yeah, amazing. it's
0: fantastic. Um, so, do you did you get up to the third one?
1: I got up to the third one. I just finished it yesterday, so fantastic. that was great. But in terms of other things, I mean, I actually really want to learn how to make music this year. So I really. I'm really – I love kind of ambient electronic music. Oh,
0: I've got the perfect person for you. Brilliant. You've got to hook up with my buddy DJ10PM. He's got two kids so and he's always in bed by 10PM, so that's his dad DJ name. Amazing. I I think – have to connect you guys.
1: Yeah. I think like when the pandemic happened, I was spending a lot of time in my room with my noise cancelling headphones, which turned out to be the greatest thing I could have ever bought. Best thing. And I went on these Spotify deep dives and I found the most interesting music that kind of takes you to different spaces that I fell in love with. So hopefully I can get the creative juices flowing a little bit. Best
0: discovered random genre.
1: I I mean I mentioned ambient it's so hard to explain like I think there's like Japanese ambient which I've come across and I think there's like so much untapped interesting music in Japan actually Um, super experimental and and fascinating so I love the kind of self-produced stuff where you'd even take noises that you might hear on the street and weave this into like a lovely kind of Um, piece that takes you on a journey.
0: Look, it can be done. I mean, my mate, DJ10PM, uh, shout out again, he was able to teach himself how to competently make electronic music in probably four weeks. Great. Uh, Which which puts shame to every DJ I follow because I just think, okay, if 10PM can do it, you know – I don't know if I respect these other guys.
1: (laughs) It's funny. I mean, I think back to we talked about busking and I'm like, this is a bit of a full circle. Who would have thought that we're back here? But I will be, uh, I think, unglamorously watching YouTube tutorials and making pretty awful sounding stuff in the beginning. But hopefully by the end of the year we've got something cool.
0: That's awesome. And so for you, I mean, social media is probably a big thing and like Twitter is a big thing and advocating, you know, it's all part of it. Um, What's the right amount of time to spend on social
1: Uh, I could give you an answer that's not quite the reality that I (laughs) wish. Um, And I think uh, probably – the ideal time is enough to be informed but not enough to be significantly affected.
0: I think if you're having arguments on Twitter, you've gone too far.
1: Exactly, and it's so easy, especially on those apps that to generate clicks and interest you have to have some level of emotion behind that and it's often not the right space to constantly be immersed in. But I think for me, you know, if there is something that I do believe in, I do say it and, um, you know, last year with everything happening, with all the sexual harassment and assault stuff um, um, I mean, it's something that I did contribute to, but after a while I was like, this is really kind of affecting me emotionally because there's so much vested in this and it's just so heavy mm. every single day. So I think, um, you know, definitely not being afraid to contribute, but then when it, when it hits a point point, you can just feel it, when you're feeling, you know, you're feeling irritated or upset, it's just not the right time to stay on there. And I think some make the mistake of remaining on there. I do think, though, like the best advice I heard in terms of like social media and branding is make it, you know, instead of just hiding everything you don't want people to find about you, make the stuff that you want them to find as available as possible. So <laughs> that way I thought that was actually really good advice. So, um, you know, I have an Instagram and Twitter and stuff and I'm updating that. And What's just, your
0: favorite uh, platform to spend time on?
1: I actually think Twitter, even though it's so flawed and not great yeah. all the time.
0: it just It's just fun. I love Twitter.
1: I find, like, it just helps me understand the debates really quick. So yeah. I was on the drum um, last, uh, last night and, you know, we're talking about COVID and schools reopening. Open Twitter, you type in schools COVID and you've got all the different points of view on, right there on your feed, which I think is really helpful. So yeah. it, in terms of kind of helping me figure out all the different voices in the room, it's actually quite a good app for that.
0: Fantastic. Hey, I wanted to ask you also um, just about the importance of mentoring, especially uh, for women, um, young women from cold backgrounds.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, mentorship played a huge role beginning in in my journey so um, I it actually started from I mean I would just show up to uni networking events back when I wasn't in uni (laughs) and I thought (laughs) I actually just want to learn from these people and they they never caught on which is great Um, and I remember the first coffee I got that turned into a job working at government which is something I never would have had the chance to do so for me like having the chance to pick their brains was pretty life-changing actually and what I remember, um, there was – I'll give a shout-out to Stephanie Fahey, the CEO, former CEO of Austrade. I went to a um, like a convention thing and um, asked her a question, and she was so interested that there was a young person there because everyone there was quite old, um, that she actually reached out to me and she said, do you want to grab a coffee? And that actually turned into me having an internship in Mexico City for two months, and wow. it, it was just fantastic, and working with Austrade there – So she was curious enough to say, I actually really want to hear from your perspective as well. And I had, of course, so much to learn from her as someone that was a leader in international relations. But that really struck me that she was kind of saw my interest and actually wanted to support that. So um, I just think that there are more leaders out there that see young people in those spaces or even think that they could be in those spaces to act as their sponsor or shout them out or even grab a coffee, it really does change their perspective and it's so helpful.
0: So do you have mentors in your corner now?
1: I do have mentors in my corner. It's funny how it actually evolves over years as well. Like there are some that um, we don't speak as often. There are some that we speak every day pretty much. But even just trying to make decisions, like advocacy isn't easy. There are plenty of crossroads at different points. So even just to kind of get their advice is really, really useful.
0: Fantastic. Hey, it's been so good having you on the pod. Uh, I just want to thank you again. We've faced a few adversities in getting you on and and you pushed through all of them. Uh, I'm so impressed and just lovely spending time with you and um, understanding some of your perspectives. Um, Is there anyone else you think we need to have on the podcast this year?
1: Uh, Night or I don't yeah. know if you've, if you've reached to but she's, uh, uh, she's one of those people that, you know, I see her work and I just think she's so cool and so brave. So I'd put her forward.
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you soon.
1: Great. Thank you so much.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.